You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. With the new Congress finally in session, two historic moments occurred. Congressman Hakeem Jeffries became the first black Democratic House Minority Leader, and Congressman Kevin McCarthy finally became the new Speaker of the House after the 15th attempt to win the vote among his colleagues. He will face a tumultuous road ahead among Republican conservatives and other outliers. But now that these positions have been secured, what does this mean for tech policy in the coming year? How will a Republican-led House enable or limit the Biden-Harris tech agenda, which includes stronger antitrust enforcement, broadband, and more equitable AI, among other policy concerns? Furthermore, how will the recent departure of key White House influencers, such as uh, Tim Wu, impact the policy agenda? In this episode, Nicole Turner-Lee and I will opine on these issues and speak to the opportunities that Democrats and Republicans have in the current uh, Congress. Nicole is the director of our Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings, and I am a senior fellow. So, Nicole, welcome to our Tech Tank podcast. Happy New Year. We're both on the same podcast with no other guest. Happy New Year to you. It's great to be with you. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I mean, you just mentioned it. So much has happened in this last year during Biden's second term, but also, you know, after the midterms and that start of Kevin McCarthy's speakership. My goodness, it was never ending, don't you think? Absolutely. So we are having this conversation against the backdrop of the Republican takeover of the House and a very contentious speakership battle. It took Kevin McCarthy 15 ballots over several days to secure his very narrow majority. And critics already are complaining that he gave away the store to the Freedom Caucus. So let's start by talking about tech policy against this backdrop of a Republican House and a Democratic Senate. So, Nicole, how do you think all this partisanship and polarization is going to affect Congress's ability to do anything on the legislative side? I don't think it's going to actually completely go away. I just think what's going to happen is that there's going to be a lot more interrogation, a lot more deliberation, a lot more hearings on the Republican side, you know, wrapping tech policy into this because I think the Republicans had some unsettled agenda items prior to the midterm elections. Yeah, I think all that uh, makes sense. And I certainly agree that I would not expect any major policy legislation. They're just too many divisions between Democrats and Republicans, but also divisions within each of the parties. I mean, I think we actually have four groupings in Congress now, kind of the traditional Republicans, the MAGA Republicans, progressive Democrats, and moderate uh, Democrats. So the ability of anyone to assemble a coalition is going to be limited on most uh, issues. And, you know, it would be hard even on basic things such as spending bills and raising the uh, debt uh, ceiling. So I think there are serious uh, questions regarding whether Congress can function at all. But policy gridlock doesn't mean that nothing is going to happen. I mean, one thing 
that already is apparent is there's going to be lots of investigations into government and businesses. Uh, the House already has created subcommittees uh, to look at federal agencies such as the FBI, the Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, and the IRS. There are also going to be uh, subcommittees on how COVID was handled. And of course, there's one on all things related to uh, China. And of course, all these subcommittees are going to be led by GOP hardliners. So I think there will be a lot of focus on the Biden administration contacts with Facebook, Twitter, Google, and YouTube. Republicans are alleging that uh, the administration colluded with these uh, tech platforms to harm conservative leaders. So there will be hearings on that front. Uh, there are lots of questions about tech supply chains in China, Chinese influence peddling in the United States. So I think all of that will generate lots of headlines, but few policy changes. Well, and you know, they just placed uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers as the new chairwoman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, taking the gavel from Frank Pallone. And if you remember, uh, you know, the representative had a big tech accountability agenda specifically looking at the use of social media among young people. So it's a very curious time, right? I don't know if you saw that the city of Seattle, the educational system is basically suing social media companies, causing that they've uh, provided excessive uh, problems when it comes to mental health for young people. And so I also think we're going to see some of those pet projects, Tarot, come through as well, where to your point, uh, many Republicans are going to look to some of their values to drive some of the policymaking on the big tech side and really point the finger towards the things that you're mentioning, China, social media, and its interplay with young people, conservative values and social media. That's I, I think that's part of that big agenda, that commitment to America that Republicans are going to try to roll out uh, something that they actually put in play during the midterm elections as well. Yeah, I agree. All that uh, makes uh, complete sense. Now, Daryl, I mean, it makes sense. But what's also interesting, and you've mentioned this in your remarks when we opened up, is that we have this historic appointment with the Congressman Jeffries as the minority speaker. Now, Jeffries is interesting because, you know, he's from the state of New York, where I'm from, not in his district, but New York. He's not Pelosi when it comes to California and allegiance to Silicon Valley. But he has taken some hard lines when it comes to big tech during the course of his career, really coming out on some of the, I think, bipartisan need to sort of reel in big tech. Do you think that he's still going to be able to govern widely around his agenda when it comes to having more accountability? Actually, I'll put it out this way, Daryl. Do we think that Hakeem Jeffries is going to form an alliance with uh, some of his Republican counterparts in terms of the antitrust agenda that he might put forth? I do think Jeffries will take a tougher stance than Pelosi did on tech companies. I mean, after all, she represented San Francisco, uh, which has a lot of big tech uh, firms. Uh, She wasn't very aggressive on policing tech uh, conduct in general or on antitrust enforcement. In contrast, as uh, you pointed out, Nicole, Jeffries comes from New York. He's taken a tougher line on tech in general. He wants to hold them accountable for anti-consumer behavior and anti-competitive practices. He already is on record as saying Facebook never should have been allowed to buy Instagram and that there needs to be much stronger antitrust enforcement. He supports bills, uh, reining in tech monopoly power, and wants greater uh, transparency and enforcement about business practices. So Democrats 
will be, of course, in the political minority, so he won't be in a very strong position to enact these laws. But I do think his leadership will raise the level of criticism directed at large uh, tech firms. Now, of course, Speaker McCarthy has not historically been a big tech critic, other than on this political censorship uh, question. He's not been very outspoken on antitrust, uh, competition policy, or privacy uh, uh, protection. So, you know, there could be some alliances on some aspects, but I doubt if McCarthy and Jeffries are going to agree on this question of political censorship of conservatives. Yeah, you know, I think that that's right. I think that that's going to be a major point of division between the two of them. But, you know, Hakeem Jeffries has always come off as a person who tries to be very diplomatic, if you notice, right? And he sort of worked his way up to this position after showing a lot of Democratic uh, civility and cadence uh, when it comes to dealing across the aisle. I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to cross the aisle, at least with the speaker, and talk a little bit about that antitrust agenda. Given the fact that Speaker McCarthy doesn't have a vested interest in this, he's got a whole lot of other issues he wants to deal with and a whole lot of things that he wants to uh, regress on the Biden administration's progress. I do think this might be an area that we'll see Congress sort of come out more bipartisan when it comes to the anti-competitive stuff. Remember, uh, uh, House Minority Leader Jeffries was over the Mergers and Acquisitions Committee um, in the House. So I think that there's going to be a lot of this interest in just, again, reeling in big tech. And now you have McMorris, who I think, you know, just judging by her temperament as well, may try to form some type of triage to get that done uh, in some way or form, even if it's, you know, using the bully pulpit of, of Congress to make sure there's action. Well, there certainly are a lot of new uh, players, and so that does reshuffle the deck and does create opportunities, perhaps for some a strange bedfellow. Yeah, exactly. Somebody. Makes for a really interesting streaming documentary. But um, I think Jeffries has larger sights in terms of his political career. So I think there may be some, um, you know, I don't, I don't think he's going to create an alphabet soup the way he did it on Congress with his speech. I think he'll be going after alphabet. Uh, when it comes to trying to reel in some of the privileges that they've had under deregulation and unregulation. Speaking of people, the White House's first antitrust czar, as some have called him, uh, and the architect of the Biden antitrust uh, enforcement activity, Tim Wu, is departing the White House uh, in order to return to his academic responsibilities. Nicole, what impact do you think this move will have on antitrust enforcement? You know, it's been interesting. I've been watching uh, some of the uh, journalists talk about Tim Wu's exit. To one extent, he was a quiet enforcer. If you recall, maybe about a couple of months ago, he did put out a blueprint that was sort of his own when it came to reclaiming American competitiveness in the space and really looking at antitrust in a way that makes sense. But I have to say, I don't know if it's because of his presence or because of what he was able to do at the White House, we have seen the Federal Trade Commission really step up and take this role on in a more significant manner than we've seen under other administrations. With that being said, I don't think at this point, because uh, Professor Wu will actually depart, that we'll see Biden stray away from this. As we've spoken about before, I do think that there'll be much more pressure on the White House to continue some of the activities that they've started with obviously the interference of lobbyists who want to make sure that the blow is not as hard when it comes to enforcement. So I just think going forward, What's interesting, and I think our scholars at CTI mentioned it, uh, Tom Wheeler in his recent post, 
while we've had a czar at the White House dealing with these issues, we haven't seen the type of scrutiny imposed on a variety of big tech companies from Twitter to Amazon to others, to Google, to Facebook, et cetera, uh, in the same way that we've seen them imposed in the European Union. So I do think going forward, we will lose probably some focus on that, Daryl. And I believe that we'll probably go deeper into the grits of enforcement as it plays out at the FTC and potentially at uh, you know the Department of Justice. But you know it's hard to say if uh, Tim Wu has left behind a, a booklet of a documentation of how to keep this going, and certainly his credibility and his stature will be a blind spot within the administration. I understand they're dividing out his work among various team members who are equally qualified, but you know, Tim Wu is Tim Wu. So that will be interesting to see how this lays out for the remainder of the Biden term. Yeah, he certainly was a major force within the administration and was very outspoken publicly as well. I guess I don't think his leaving is going to lessen the administration's no. antitrust activities. I mean, there are strong competition leaders at the Federal Trade Commission in the form of Lena Kahn. Uh, she uh, has been very uh, active in confronting uh, big uh, tech, has already filed some uh, legal actions. Uh, there also are strong advocates in key roles across the administration. Uh, Kahn, of course, had worked very closely with Congressman David Cicilline on some of the hearings that he held a couple of years ago trying to uh, hold uh, tech companies accountable for uh, various uh, things uh, that were uh, going on. So I think uh, antitrust enforcement will remain a high priority uh, with the administration. Now, Nicole, the administration uh, already uh, has been tough on antitrust enforcement. There are going to be more in-depth reviews on mergers and acquisitions. Uh, we already have seen uh, the administration uh, take action to uh, block uh, Microsoft's acquisition of Activision, a video gaming uh, company. What do you expect in terms of antitrust enforcement in general? You know, I, I just have to say, I think what the FTC has done with the DOJ is going to continue. I think that there has definitely not been a lackadaisical approach to mergers and acquisitions, uh, particularly as the FTC and DOJ have followed the statutes that are in place to ensure that these private equity transactions are fair, equitable, as well as, you know, not necessarily creating any type of tension or conflict when it comes to uh, their integration. With that being said, you know, I do worry because this Biden FTC has come on with a very strong arm uh, that we're properly staffing it, right? Uh, do we have the number of people in place so that this can be as you know, Daryl's a political scientist, something that is more legacy build versus something that happens within an administration. And then if we were to change uh, party leadership, it would regress. So I do think, you know, given that they are going harder on mergers and acquisitions, that they're going to need more people. Because I think that the digital transformation that is occurring, particularly with some of the layoffs that we're seeing in other companies, some of the duplicity of services that are happening within companies and between companies, we're going to see more acquisitions like the one that you spoke about with Microsoft um, and other verticals in the technology space that are going to try to, and, and look, we've seen this before. Uh, they're going to get bigger by finding alliances with companies that have complementary services before they split apart and become more disparate, right? And so I do think going forward, this is going to be a challenge to the administration who's come out really hard in this space, losing Tim Wu, putting in the talent of uh, the chairwoman at the FTC, 
but at the same token, not necessarily staffing up the way it needs to to handle these individual transactions. It does take a lot of staffing and a lot of financial resources to yep. engage in these uh, lawsuits and also just uh, kind of reviewing uh, mergers and acquisitions in uh, general. But I, I do think uh, Khan already has been strong on anti-enforcement action. Uh, you know, she is uh, seeking to block uh, the acquisition of Activision. I think the biggest uncertainty that I see is whether the courts are actually going to side with the administration as a right, uh, right. tougher enforcement. You know, it's it's actually pretty hard to block acquisitions when the company being acquired is in a different sector than the acquiring a firm. Activision is a video gaming uh, company. And of course, Microsoft does have Xbox, but there are lots of competitors in that uh, sector. The courts have been uh, very pro-corporate for decades now. So it often has been difficult for administrations that wanted to uh, crack down on antitrust uh, actually being successful in their uh, legal efforts to do so. And so I think that will be an interesting uh, part to watch, not just what the administration is doing, but how the courts react to these tougher efforts. Yeah, no, I think you're completely right about that because, you know, one thing is we know for sure uh, the White House has been pretty sturdy when it comes to putting in place people that are basically following through on Biden's agenda. We've seen that with the previous appointments and some of the appointments that are coming through. But I do agree with you. We've not quite seen at this point, because there's just been so many issues, this complete alignment. Uh, you know, obviously... Uh, Merrick Garland is dealing with a whole lot of other stuff as well. So it'll be interesting to see how his Department of Justice moves forward and the extent to which they're going to get many of these things in place. I mean, look, Daryl, you already know that the shed has begun right at the White House. We're halfway through Biden's term. So it'll be interesting also to see what that looks like, again, on staffing to make some of these uh, policy items reality. With that being said, he's got another renomination on the books, and that is of Gigi Sohn, who's come back up as the White House has resubmitted her name for commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission. This is going to be interesting because if you recall, the Senate wouldn't move forward her appointment. In fact, uh, Ted Cruz was very, very instrumental, uh, along with some of his colleagues, in blocking that. But there's been two effects. You know, first and foremost, we've been operating at a 2-2 split at the Federal Communications Commission. And secondly, we now have a Democrat majority Senate. Curious from you, is Gigi going to get confirmed this time or is this going to be another ping pong? I mean, we know that there are some issues that she's taken a hard line on and those were interrogated. I mean, it's been two years. But I'm curious to hear from you if you think the Senate will actually move on it so we can get to a 3-2 FCC in favor of the Democrats. I think she has a better chance now just because Democrats, as you uh, pointed out, have a 51-49 advantage. So she actually could lose one Democrat and still gain approval. So I think the key people to watch are going to be Senators Manchin and Sinema. You know, their votes always are crucial uh, in this area. She can lose one of them, but obviously not uh, both of them. So I think all eyes are going to be on each of them. I'm not sure Biden actually would have renominated uh, Sohn if he didn't think he had the votes within his own party. It actually would have been stupid of him not right, to right. with those uh, right. two uh, senators and say, like, are you at least open to uh, nomination? Uh, so I think 
assuming that he did that, and at least one of them came back and said uh, they would vote for her, uh, you know, she should have a uh, decent shot. On the question of the impact on the FCC, you know, it would be enormous. Uh, you know, you mentioned right now the FCC is deadlocked at, at two to two, so they really can't do anything of significance. If she got confirmed, uh, that would actually be a major change at that commission, uh, just because she is a very strong consumer advocate. Uh, she would give Democrats a 3-2 uh, majority. It would put uh, them in a very strong position to make a major uh, regulatory uh, decision. So it, it definitely would have a uh, huge impact if she got confirmed. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh Chairwoman Rosa Warsaw has come out in support of her nomination. But I think also what's happening with this commission, if you notice, each of the commissioners have basically outlined and detailed the course of action that they want to take. They all have had their own agendas, which have worked pretty complementary to one another. So it would also be interesting if we see Sohn come in, as you're suggesting, as a strong consumer advocate, to see how that gets navigated within the Democratic faction of the FCC as well. So I'm just keeping my eyes open um, to see how that will work. But I do think, to your point, they've just been gridlocked on so many other important issues uh, and so many other important dockets. You know, the FCC's primary responsibility right now is on the broadband spending bill. But it would be interesting to see how that dynamic may change and what areas uh, Gigi may find herself in if confirmed. Which brings me to that word I said, spending, right? I mean, not surprisingly, the Republicans have expressed utter frustration with the Biden administration on big spending. Efforts are already underway to look at that spending and oversight with the broadband appropriations that have been made through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. What do you expect, uh, Daryl, when it comes to a Republican House majority on these and other related issues? I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of oversight on the infrastructure bill, both in the House as well as in the yeah. Senate. As you yeah. mentioned, uh, House Republicans already are salivating uh, at the prospect of kind of diving into the billions that uh, have been spent and will be uh, spent over the next uh, couple of years. And, you know, just wanting to ask, you know, was the, man, was the money spent wisely? Was it effective? Is it actually achieving the goal of closing the uh, digital divide? Because uh, as you know better than anyone, you know, almost 20% of Americans still don't have a home broadband. So they're outside the digital uh, revolution. And we need the money from this uh, infrastructure investment to actually make a difference. You know, we've been trying to close that divide for uh, many uh, years. Uh, people need the digital access for telemedicine, online education, remote work, and uh, e-commerce. I mean, people can't even apply for jobs if they are uh, not online. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, part of uh, my new book that will be out soon, I promise listeners, it's coming out. I promise. Daryl continues to publish more than I do. And I'm only on my first book. But listen, I think to your point, it's going to be interesting because what we have seen historically is that every different administration handles the digital divide, for example, differently. And we've seen even though people do not say it explicitly, some differences in partisanship when it comes to how much we spend on it. I am curious, like yourself, on how Republicans will manage through their interrogation while Secretary Davidson is out there trying to get this money out the door before the Biden administration's term is up. So that will be very interesting going forward. 
and the extent to which the broadband money in particular will be interrogated and what Republicans may be expecting out of their majority in terms of metrics. It's very hard to say right now because many of the states and localities have just recently received their capacity building grants. And now we're seeing some conversation happening among Republicans, uh, bringing up old issues of, is this enough? Is it not enough? Why is it too much? And I think at the end of the day, that could backfire the Biden administration if people like Alan Davidson and Jessica Rosa Warsaw find themselves before the commission in a variety of hearings versus getting this work done. Although I also think, you know, one interesting aspect of this whole infrastructure thing is you know, one of the big parts of America that has been lagging on broadband access actually is rural areas, which is yes. you know, the heartland for uh, Republican uh, votes. So you would think, even though we understand why Republicans are wanting to investigate uh, the Biden administration on infrastructure investment, they have a political self-interest in getting rural areas wired. So I would think they would want to be very supportive of that aspect. Well, and that's the thing I'd love to like bring up, right? Because we have seen such a polarized Congress, a Congress that's also been divided by who you are, you know, where you live, what your values are. It would be interesting to see that we actually witness more movement when it comes to Republicans on whether or not rural areas are properly being served. I'm concerned about that. I mean, we just recently published some new research that suggests that rural areas areas should not be a politicized concern, that it's more than white, that it's homogenous there, like Trump actually purported, that it's actually a diversity of people. So I'm just curious going forward the extent to which the Republicans will scale away from the politicization of this issue and really focus on getting the money out the door so that all communities can be served. Yeah, that will definitely be interesting to watch. And I know, Nicole, you have written a lot on the uh, digital divide. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are and what impact do you think these expenditures will have on actually closing the digital divide? I mean, especially given the fact that Biden has two more years to implement his policies. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I am fingers crossed, uh, one eye closed, um, pinky promised. You know, I want this to work and I want it to work in a way where we can coordinate the funding to get it to not just unserved and underserved communities, but the infrastructure that exists around them, schools, libraries, churches, community-based organizations. I think the more that we continue to do a, a self-check as a country on whether or not these funds are being appropriated to hyper-local considerations and communities where people need access to telehealth and banking and other areas, that will still be the question, right? But I do think if we find ourselves in a political debate on whether or not there's oversight or whether or not the money was too much or duplicative, because we do have various funding streams. We've got commerce, we've got the treasury, we've got the FCC allocating money towards this. We've got the private sector. I'm just hoping that the Republicans are not going to make this into a hodgepodge of political irony and debate that we actually fail to reach, you know, at least three quarters of the nation having digital connectivity. Yeah, I mean, we definitely need to close the digital divide. I mean, the whole economy is moving in the digital uh, direction. We don't want anyone left behind. It's bad for those individuals. It's bad for the overall economy. So we need to make sure that this uh, infrastructure investment uh, works and that it actually is successful in closing that divide. 
hey, listen, Daryl, don't give away my book here, buddy. It's coming out soon. <laughs> but that's basically what I'm writing about, that it's not necessarily a social service issue, right? But this is one around our global competitiveness. You know, which brings me to the next question, which our colleague Cam Carey will pitch a tent until it's done. Are we going to have a data privacy bill this year under this new Congress? I hope that we have a data privacy bill because we need one. Uh, right. you know, there's just so many privacy uh, problems that have been around for years. And, you know, states are starting to take action here, but we still don't have that bill from uh, Congress. But uh, I'm actually moderately optimistic in part because of the change from Pelosi to Jeffries on the Democratic side. Yeah. Uh, she has been blocking a national privacy bill uh, that she worries would weaken the provisions that California already has put in place. Uh, she's on record as not wanting to preempt state laws, and that has actually been a big barrier to building the bipartisan coalition that's necessary for a national privacy bill. I think Jeffries might be a little more amenable on that front. I mean, I don't think he's going to want to water down too many of the California provisions, but I think he... It'll be interesting to see how he handles this question of state uh, uh, preemption, just because that has been one of the big barriers to action on a national privacy bill. You know, I agree with you. I think that there's going to be a push to try to get a privacy bill out. And you remember, people like Cantwell will have the era of Hakeem Jeffries going forward, right? So I think that there's going to be some key players that will be able to speak to him and bring him up to speed on the importance of the legislation that was put forth. Again, our hope is because we were getting close with the bipartisan solution that, to your point, only now had that stalemate of preemption at, at stake. You know, our hope is that we will get a data privacy bill, especially given the considerations of what's happened since, during, after COVID, right? That people will see the significance. So, Nicole, the White House has also put out what it calls an AI Bill of Rights, which I know you've covered in a recent event, and uh, we've had a recent blog post on this. Uh, where is that headed in the new uh, Congress, uh, either as a general idea or in terms of formal policy action? You know, listen, that got great traction. Um, we hosted an event with the White House on the AI Bill of Rights. We know that that's been codified into action. So our hope is that the current Congress will now put the adjacent legislation potentially to what the intent of the White House Bill of Rights might be. It's still an open question. I mean, I think the Biden has a lot of really great ideas that it started uh, under the Democratic majority. The question, Dara, will be whether or not those things will continue. We do know AI matters and you know, we know it matters in a variety of ways from, you know, how we process services and keep things more efficient to, you know, our international partners and what we're using AI for on a national security front. The question, again, is whether or not the Biden administration will be able to continue with the, what I call these kinds of projects that do not get in the way of, you know, defending other things that I think are high on his agenda as well. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, AI is one of the transformative technologies of our time. Just a couple of years ago, I read a book entitled Turning Point that uh, looked at AI uh, policy. So uh, certainly uh, the private sector is continuing to move in that area. I do think the AI Bill of Rights is a step in the right direction in the sense that it is trying to delineate the important provisions that are needed in regard to safety, transparency, uh, fighting bias and uh, protecting uh, security. Uh, all those are very important uh, principles. But the uh, White House uh, Bill of Rights 
laid out broad uh, principles that needs to move towards more specific policy remedies. Yes. It'll be interesting to look at the administrative agencies at the federal level, just in terms of how they start implementing those uh, provisions, uh, what uh, is meant by that. Uh, we're seeing widespread use of uh, AI in the defense area, in the finance area, uh, in education and in healthcare. So we do need to think about what rights do people that need as this technology starts to move forward? Yeah, and I think that's part of it, right? The extent to which the AI Bill of Rights as sort of this material value uh, intention will lead itself to the federal agencies as well as to potential legislation. I mean, we just, again, published on this after having the event, uh, very worthwhile read to really see going into this new Congress, the extent to which Congress is going to get behind this, you know? So I'd like to move to the international scene because there obviously is lots of tech action uh, taking place uh, there. The European Union is stepping up its enforcement in many areas. Uh, technology has become a big part of warfare in Ukraine as well as elsewhere. We're seeing a widespread uh, use of AI drones and then social media of course are playing a role at the information level uh, there continue to be concerns about uh, china so i know that covers a lot of different topics but what should we be watching internationally regarding technology well i think you know uh, TikTok is definitely top of mind when it comes to china um brendan carr has led this initiative and has been followed by several congressional uh, members around banning TikTok from federal workers. And I think ultimately trying to ban TikTok from American use, which will be interesting. TikTok just actually came out with a um, statement that I just read. So I think that's going to be a big deal. I also think, and this is something that you deal with on the semiconductor front, that we're going to see a lot more of the Trump-like agenda among a majority house when it comes to protectionism in spaces where there's manufacturing, related to technology or advanced manufacturing. So I uh, would love to hear you as you know we wrap up, talk more about that. But I think that, that China's gonna, gonna lead. I mean, there's a select committee on China right now. I was listening to their hearing just the other day where legislators like Judy Chu are like, hey, we're with it to really look at the uh, People's Republic of China. But at the same token, we wanna make sure that that doesn't continue the xenophobic uh, behaviors that are uh, waged against Asian American citizens. So going forward again, that's gonna be really important. I also think that you bring up a point around national security and international cooperation, particularly as we've seen warfare recane do uh, use AI and drones. I would say that internationally, we're going to see a lot more of those efforts here in the United States where technology can be useful in our modernization of our defense program. And that continues to be the case, but I think it's going to go even further as we look at the multiplicity of the type of technology we're seeing. I would just say, finally, on the international scene, you know, where there are opportunities in technology, there are also perils. So I think going forward, it's really important for us to think about technology at all times, not just at times of crisis, right, in terms of it's good and it's bad. And I think internationally, what the EU is suggesting is that it's all bad, or what we're suggesting among American innovators, that it's all good to a certain extent, but there's no middle ground. And so I think the U.S. will have to continue to think about uh, the weaponization of technology internationally, 
uh, how it plays out on domestic soil by international actors. And I think the U.S. will have to come up with some type of policy at the end of the day um, that protects our elections and our democracy. So I think this is a topic, Daryl, of another podcast that you and I should just come back and talk about. I love kind of kicking it back and talking with you on these issues. But I think going forward, international is going to be a game changer under this administration, provided we take the appropriate path. Uh, to secure our borders, while the, our technological borders, our virtual borders, while at the same time participating cooperatively in spaces where I think different countries can work together for the good of national security. No, I definitely think there's going to be a lot of action on each of those fronts. So certainly in thinking about the European Union, they long have been tougher on tech than the United States has been, for example. But the U.S. wants to build an alliance with the European Union against China. And so yeah. the question is, is the EU going to lower its standards or is the U.S. going to have to raise its uh, standards and it seems to me it has to be the latter. Like the EU is not going to lighten up just because of the United States. I think if we want uh, an alliance with Europe, we're going to have to move closer to their position. And as they have cracked down in different areas, you know, tech companies don't want to build one AI solution for Germany and then a different one for New York. It's like, you know, once you kind of meet some of the EU standards, it almost becomes a, a global uh, standard. That's and you're right. absolutely right in terms of how tech is affecting warfare. I mean, we're seeing it every day in Ukraine. Uh, you know, that war has almost become a drone war. Uh, so we're seeing that technology. There's a lot of AI uh, applications. And on the China front, the thing I found interesting about the House creating these various investigatory uh, subcommittees is almost all of those subcommittees were created on an almost purely partisan vote. Yep. But the one exception was actually China, which actually was a bipartisan vote. I believe that three quarters of uh, the members of the House actually voted to create uh, that uh, subcommittee just to look at competition with China, what the tech issues are, how does the United States uh, ensure a, a viable a global supply chain. I mean, there are lots of issues there. And for me, the interesting thing was both Democrats and Republicans actually came together to said, these are important questions and we need to find the answers there. Yeah, I mean, I think going forward, it's just going to be one of those things where the United States witnessed, I think during COVID, you know, our dependency on China for a variety of products and services. But I think in the tech marketplace, um, it's even more clear that we need a distinguishing factor when it comes to uh, advanced manufacturing and other production capacities. So, you know, again, it's just going to be interesting. I mean, we're seeing, and it kind of goes back to your first point, right, Daryl? Like, there has been this break off from Trump when it comes to many of his previous policies and the extent to which this new Republican, quote unquote, House is trying to reinvent itself and the extent to which they caved into now what we're seeing, this Freedom Caucus that in and of itself has some light affiliation to Trump. So I think going forward with China, it will be interesting, like you said, to see the bipartisan nature of the work that they do and the extent to which it's going to err on the side of keeping China out per se versus trying to find ways for the United States to get in to some of these economies that we've not been able to exploit at this point. And Daryl, you know, I got to ask you, because I know that when you're not sniffing around everything that you do at Brookings, uh, the CHIPS Act just actually went through. That's great prospect for the domestic semiconductor market here in the United States. How do you think that's going to improve internationally our standing? I think it's going to be a big improvement, along with all the money that 
private companies already are investing on their own. But it's really vital to rebuild U.S. domestic manufacturing capability in a number of different areas, but certainly in the semiconductor space. It's chips are so vital for the overall economy. Uh, the automotive sector, like these auto companies, have not been able to ship as many cars as they would want because of a chip uh, shortage. You know, all those little devices are powering automobiles. And the same is true in terms of mobile technology, uh, consumer devices, and virtually every other sector. And what a lot of people don't realize is that almost all of our current capacity at the high end uh, uh, computer chip level uh, in terms of manufacturing is in Taiwan and South Korea, both of which are really risky places from a geopolitical uh, standpoint. So uh, investing in the CHIP Act uh, is a great investment in our future. But I do think the big challenge there, uh, even once we start to rebuild our manufacturing capacity, is going to be on the talent side. You know, we still need more STEM uh, talent. You know, native born Americans are not going into those fields. And America as a country is cracking down on the number of immigrants who are coming uh, to our country. And oftentimes immigrants have been a vital part of the digital economy. I mean, so many of the Silicon Valley firms had a uh, immigrant founder or a co-founder. So I think talent is one of the limiting factors in boosting digital innovation and rebuilding our domestic manufacturing capability. Well, Nicole, it has been great to be on the same podcast with you. I really enjoyed our conversation and look forward to an exciting year coming up. Yes, Daryl, I agree. And thank you, everyone, for joining our Tech Tank podcast, the first in the new year. We take big bits and tech policy conversations and make them into palatable bites. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this conversation and many others that will be part of the show. So don't forget to follow our Tech Tank blog for more details on many of these issues. You can find us at brookings.edu. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.